we continue on in our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians, we come now to chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6 and verse 9, we're only going to be looking at three verses this morning, but these three verses contain quite the profundity of truth. And so I'd ask your attention as we feast upon these verses. A lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to try to do it as uh, expediently as possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse number 9, these are the words of God. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I'm going to preach to you this morning a message with the question, Deceived or Delivered? Deceived or delivered. In this text, the Apostle Paul writes with a tension that is familiar to every faithful preacher of the gospel. It is a tension that requires balance because there is a ditch on both sides of this tension. And if the preacher and his sermon fall into either one of those ditches, he is sure to do a great disservice to his congregation. The tension is seen in the two purposes that drive the Apostle Paul as he writes this passage. His first purpose in this passage is to cause those who are not saved, but have deceived themselves into thinking that they are saved, to feel the conviction of their sins and realize their need for true salvation. That is one purpose which the Apostle Paul writes to us this morning. But his second purpose in this same text, is to comfort and encourage those Christians who truly are saved, but because of their ongoing battle with sin, they struggle with the assurance of their salvation, or perhaps maybe not the assurance of their salvation, but they struggle with their standing and their acceptance with God. They know that they're redeemed, but they they live their Christian lives as if God is constantly angry and displeased with them. When you live that way as a Christian, you will not do much for God. Your your guilt, your sense of guilt will cripple your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And in short, Paul wants to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And he does both of these things in the span of three verses. The challenge, the tension for the preacher is to now come along as a fallible man and propound the truth that the apostle delivered under the inspiration of God, all the while not falling into either one of the two ditches that lie on each side. One ditch is to sway too heavily on the side of conviction and to preach a discouraging message that beats up Christ's sheep, that leaves them hopeless, that leaves them heavy laden, and that gives them no perspective of of salvation or deliverance. It's easy to do that. It's easy to, to, to look at such a list as we find in this text and to spend hours belaboring these sins and you will leave your congregation feeling much more miserable than when they came in. You don't want to fall into that ditch, but the other ditch is to sway too heavily on the side of comfort and to gloss over the seriousness of the sins that are mentioned in this text to gloss over the real possibility of deception. Let me say it this way. If you are truly a Christian today, I don't want you to leave feeling miserable. But if you're not, I do. I'm keenly aware that I regularly address a mixed multitude of people. Some of you are sincere Christians, but perhaps you are discouraged in your fight with sin so much that it causes you to doubt, causes you to struggle And if that is you, I want you to see the blessed comfort that this text brings to your heart as it reminds you of the redeeming work of Christ. It's a glorious encouragement. 
Some of you are not Christians. Um, But perhaps you've deceived yourself into thinking that you are. All the while, you are persisting in a life of unrepentant sin. Well, if that is you, I want you to feel the conviction that this text brings. May you realize that you are a fraud, that your Christianity is fake, that you stand in desperate need of a Savior. Perhaps the most frustrating reality for the preacher is this. It certainly is for me. No matter which category you're in, a saint that needs comfort or a sinner that needs conviction, I cannot help you. There's nothing I can say in and of myself that will do you any good. My only hope is that God himself would minister to the needs of your heart as his word is preached. Now, why do I tell you this? Why do I include such a lengthy disclaimer? Because I want you to understand where I'm coming from as I approach this text. This passage contains some very hard sayings. Things that that might make you feel uncomfortable. Things that might even make you angry with me as I work my way through this text. I want you to know that I'm not preaching to you as a bully in the pulpit that's trying to make you feel bad. I'm preaching to you as a pastor who loves you, cares for you, and desires to see you comforted in Christ. So if at times it seems like I'm struggling to be faithful to this passage, it's because I am. Because I don't want to fall into either one of these two ditches. May the Lord help us as we, as we exposit these verses. This passage concludes on a mountain peak, that is verse 11. Verse 11 is a glorious mountain peak with a glorious view. 1 Corinthians 6.11 is one of the most blessed verses in the word of God. But in order to go there, we must go through the valley, that is verses 9 and 10. Faithful preaching doesn't allow us to just skip to verse 11. Verses 9 and 10 are just as much the Word of God, just as much inspired, just as much authoritative, just as much needed for us as verse 11. So as we march through these verses, may we all see this potent call to repentance, but also this precious proclamation of the glorious work of Christ. There's both a sharp rebuke and a sweet reminder, both a serious warning and a strong encouragement. There's three things I want you to see. The first, beginning in verse number nine, is the caution against deception. The caution against deception. Paul begins by saying, Know ye not, and again the implication there is, you do know these things, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, verses 9 and 11 are divorced from their context, and the unrighteous here is is understood as all manners of sinners. If you were to just preach this passage, let's say you weren't in a verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians, and you come to verse 9, you would just interpret the unrighteous as, well, all sorts of unrighteousness, all sorts and all categories of sinners. And there's a sense in which that is true, but the context defines for us what Paul means when he says the unrighteous. Because what has he been talking about for the first eight verses of chapter 6? We think back to last week. The unrighteous refers specifically to those who deal unjustly with others. That type of unrighteousness, unjustness. We have, see, we have this awful inclination to place our sins into two separate categories. We falsely assume that there are two types of sins. There's the really wicked sins that deserve condemnation. Those are the bad sins that send you to hell. But then there's just the little sins that God overlooks. I mean, surely if you were to murder someone in cold blood, that would warrant the wrath of God, right? No one seems to run to the defense of someone like a Mao Zedong or an Adolf Hitler when someone says, yeah, he he probably died and went to hell because there's no sign of repentance and he was a homicidal maniac, right? No one bats an eye when you say something like that, but God would certainly not punish you for a little greed or just a little selfishness that causes you to take your brother to court, right? I mean, everybody 
does that. Those are respectable sins, little sins. And so Paul amps up the volume. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The root of your... Taking your brother to court was just the manifestation, but the root, the greed, the covetousness, the selfishness, those are sins that God hates. Lest anyone in the Corinthian church have this faulty mindset of, of big sins and little sins, Paul tells them in no uncertain terms that those who defraud and deal unjustly will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can imagine Paul saying, you, you thought it was just that guy in chapter 5 uh, that was sleeping with his mother-in-law, his father's wife. You thought it was just that guy that was, that was a sinner. You thought it was just that guy that was in danger of hell. But those of you who have not repented of your greed and covetousness are in the same danger. That's important for us to consider as we go through this list. So Paul says, Be not deceived. Why would, why would God have to tell us, be not deceived? Because we so easily deceive ourselves. We so easily deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our sins are not that bad. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our sins are somehow the exception to the rule. Perhaps the most bizarre deception occurs when those of us who will most loudly affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can't do anything to earn our salvation, will at the same time deceive ourselves into thinking that God will overlook our sins in one area because of some good we've done in another area. Now, I, I volunteered at the soup kitchen last Tuesday, so God's going to forgive me for the lie I told to my brother. He's going to overlook that because my good outweighs my bad. Well, what would we say to any lost person that came in here and, and gave us a scheme of salvation where they thought, I'm going to go to heaven because my good outweighs my bad? We would, we would jump on them. We would say, the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. No, not one. Your good will never outweigh your bad. But yet we turn around and do the same things. Well, because I showed up for church and dropped a check in the tithe box, God's going to overlook my prayerlessness and the fact that I haven't read my Bible at home for the last week and a half. Because I'm a seminary student, I, because I study the Bible, because I, I, I even go to the Wednesday night prayer meetings, God doesn't have a problem with my pornography. Those are the lies that we tell ourselves. This is also why so many Christians fall in moral areas. And by the way, who do you think is most susceptible? Pastors. Pastors. Or Christians that the more you devote it's the more you devote yourself to service, the greater this temptation will become for you. Because they convince themselves that God is okay with their private immorality, their sins of the heart, the secret things that no one knows about them because of the good that they do elsewhere, the good that they do publicly. May we strive to not be hypocrites. May we be the same people in private, in our closets, alone as we are publicly. Be not deceived. See, the truth is, all of the things I just mentioned are lies. <laughs> They're lies. And whether you are a Christian or an unbeliever, the only satisfying answer to your sins is the shed blood of Christ. Believer, you need to be preaching the gospel to yourself every day. You need to be remembering what Jesus did on the cross for you every day. His work on the cross was not just something that got you into the faith, it's something that keeps you in the faith something that secures you. And even now, it is his intercession reminding the Father of his sacrificial death that atones for your sins, and that, that gives you the experience of forgiveness. So, now that we have cautioned ourselves against deception, Paul will now give us a catalog of sins. A catalog of sins. In this text, we find that there is no sin too small to send you to an eternity in hell. 
there's also no sin too great to be forgiven by the atoning death of Christ. Do you see how if we were to forget one of those two truths, we would fall into a ditch? I mean, if we would, be, if we would begin to think that there were sins that were too small to damn us, we'd find ourselves in a world of horrid surprise when we stand before God on Judgment Day. But if we begin to think that there are sins that are too great for Christ to forgive us from, what a miserable existence that would be as well. I remember when the Lord saved a very, very dear friend of mine. And he was raised in the church that he is now a member of. His, his father passed away a couple of months ago, but his father was one of the founding members of the church. But he did not save his son Samuel until he was in his mid-twenties. And when Samuel gave his testimony, Samuel said, Yes, I heard the gospel from my youth up. I knew that Jesus forgave sinners. I saw him save other sinners. I even knew that I was unsaved and needed to be saved. But the thing that hindered me was I convinced myself that I was too bad of a sinner for God to save. He will save others, but not me. Let me say, by the way, that's a very arrogant statement to make. You have severely underestimated the power of Jesus' blood. Now, the list that we find at the end of verse 9 and verse 10, it's not an exhaustive list, okay? So it's not, obviously, it's not containing every single specific transgression of God's word, but it does encompass a wide variety of sinful categories. Some sins on this list will require more explanation than others. Uh, there are, these are sins that have always characterized fallen men and women. None of these sins are new, uh, but yet they find heinous ways to manifest themselves differently in each generation. And as we go through this list, I want each one of you to ask yourselves this question about every sin on this list as we look at them. And we're going to look at every one. We're not going to gloss over any of them. I want you to ask, am I deceived by this sin? It's a question you should ask if you're a Christian, if you're an unbeliever. Am I deceived by this sin. In fact, especially ask this if you, if you claim the name of Christ, if you think yourself to be a Christian. Because if you claim the name of Christ, yet these sins flourish in your heart with no conviction, no remorse, and no repentance, you are deceived. You are deceived. Notice I did not say if you commit these sins, or if you struggle with these sins, or if you're tempted with these sins, then you are deceived. In fact, if you struggle with these sins, if you hate these sins, if you want them out of your life, that is actually a good indicator that Christ has redeemed you and that the Spirit does indwell you. But if we're looking at this list and we come across a sin and you think, you know, that is me. I, that, that's, that's how I live my life. And, but yet, I don't, I don't feel any conviction over it. I don't see the problem with it. These sins have free range in your heart if you live in them, if they characterize you, if they consume you, you have no reason to think that you know the Lord or that the Lord knows you. Because Christ loves His people too much to allow them to remain in the sins that He died to save them from. And if you belong to Him, He will pull you out of them. And He will put within you a hatred for them. And if the Spirit reveals this morning that you are in bondage to these sins, repent today and flee to Christ. Let us look now at this list. Be not deceived. And let me mention this as well. Notice how the apostle uses a, a literary device where he's stressing the negative. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adult, nor, nor, nor. He's stressing the gravity and the seriousness of this list. He says, be not deceived, neither fornicators. Fornicators. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians, fornication is a broad term that encompasses all forms of sexual expression outside the bonds of marriage. It's a very broad term in the Greek, porneia. It's a, it covers a host of different issues. Well, what are the two, two most common expressions today in our society? Premarital sex and pornography. That's how it manifests itself here in 2022 the most. 
I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this sin because Paul addresses it several more times in this chapter and also in chapter 7. So we will be looking at this more in the weeks to come. But let me just mention two things about the sin of fornication, which the Bible says, if you are consumed with this sin, if you are a fornicator, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Number one, we must be aware that we live in a culture that absolutely thrives off of fornication. It is no longer considered shameful. You know, used to we lived in a culture, is anybody an English literature fair? Is it British literature? The, the, the Scarlet Letter, right? It was, a, it was a book about how shameful it was to fornicate and to commit adultery. What a, what a, what a move we have gone into in the last century. It's no longer considered shameful. It's celebrated. It's boasted and it's promoted. If you don't believe me, then I, I challenge you to name one popular movie or one hit TV show that's come out in the last five years that didn't rely on fornication as a central element of its plot. I can think of shows going as far back as the 90s and the 80s that relied on it. If you took fornication out of the show, you'd have no show. You'd have no plot line. Because the main plot line of the show were two unmarried individuals having a fornicating relationship. But what's worse than than this, because we're not surprised when the world acts like the world. We're not surprised when a decaying world gets deader. (laughs) But what's worse is that Christians who claim to be redeemed from the world will gorge themselves on this entertainment. And they will say to themselves, well, I know it's wrong, therefore I can enjoy it and God's okay with that. Do you ever stop to consider the effect that that has on your mind and your soul. You know, you read a five-minute devotional in the morning and then you binge-watch your Netflix show that glorifies premarital sex and pornography and unfaithfulness and all sorts of sexual immorality and then you wonder why you struggle to live the Christian life and think spiritual thoughts. You gorge yourself on, on fornication and, and enjoying it, maybe not committing it, but in, enjoying the, the luster of it It's how you spend your Saturday evening and then you come to church in the morning on Sunday and you think, why can't I worship? Why can't I enter in? Again, we will, as we go on in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we'll we'll see the apostles' teachings on the sin of fornication and adultery. Let me say secondly about this before we move on. Because of this, because of this fact that we live in a culture that is saturated and thriving off of fornication, because of this, I fear, especially for the younger generation of Christians that are coming up in this world. And that includes those of you here this morning. I fear for you. Young people that enter into dating relationships with little to no accountability, little to no boundaries, virtually unlimited freedom, they put their souls in great danger. You are endangering yourself if you are doing that. Because fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do Christians commit this sin? Yes. Yes, they do. But when they do, there will be repentance, there will be remorse, there will be regret. If you are given to the sin of fornication and it does not grieve you, you need to search your heart. Have you deceived yourself into thinking that God is okay with it? Well, we're going to get married anyway, so it's okay. You told yourself that lie? Now do you see why I gave the disclaimer at the beginning of the message? I'm not preaching to you as a bully that wants to shame you Nor am I even, let me say this, nor am I even preaching with any specific situation in mind. I don't know of of anything presently. I'm preaching as a pastor who loves you. The Bible says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on, nor idolaters. Nor idolaters. Well, fornication discouraged us. But now we come to idolatry and we pat ourselves on the back. 
right? Because we don't bow down to statues. We don't burn incense. We don't have pagan images in our house. We're here on a Sunday morning at a Christian church. We're not down at the Hindu temple, not at the mosque. Check, move on, right? Well, sadly, it's not that easy. What is an idolater? An idolater is anyone who puts anything in the place of God as an object of worship, trust, love, or satisfaction. If your job is more important to you than God, you are an idolater. If your house is more important to you than God, you are an idolater. If your girlfriend or your boyfriend is more important to you than God, you are an idolater. Nor adulterers. This is a specific type of fornication. It falls under that broad category that refers to infidelity against a spouse. When two people enter into the marriage covenant, they make an oath before God. The sin of adultery is a violation of that oath. It is a sin that destroys families. If a married man cheats with another married woman, just think of all the lives that are affected. In some ways, you could say that fornication is kind of like the junior varsity sin, whereas adultery is a home-wrecking sin. It is so destructive, in fact, that it was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Fornication was not, mind you. Adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament. It was better for society as a whole in the Old Testament for adulterers to be put to death than for them to go on living in their adultery. That is how serious this sin was in Israel. Now, this, the young singles... I feel like I've been beating up on them. So what about us married people? Right, adultery is kind of a sin that's hard to commit if you're not married. Well, again, we might be able to pat ourselves on the back because we've never cheated on our spouse. We've been faithful to the vows that we made to them. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 28? But I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. There's not a saved married person here today that has not had to confess and repent of this sin. And if you haven't, and you call yourself a Christian, you might be deceived. Nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. We look at these as a, as a combination. And I, I appreciate the accuracy of the King James here because uh, some other versions just translate this as one word, homosexuals, but really uh, this, uh, this is two words that Paul uses in the original. And I'm not going to get too graphic with it, but the first term, effeminate, refers to the individual who takes the more passive feminine role and the second term, abusers of themselves with mankind, refers to the individual who takes the active male role. That's what the, that's what the Bible says. But the point is this, and that's why, this is why I think Paul um, used both terms. The point is this, regardless of how it is expressed, any form of sexuality apart from one man and one woman and a monogamous, heterosexual, marital relationship is condemned by the word of God. And we as Christians are losing that battle today. We, we keep moving the goalposts on this issue. Uh, as soon as the world takes an inch, we just give them another inch, and then we pick up our goalposts and move it a few yards and stick it back down in the ground and say, ah, we're not going past this. And then they cross that, and then we pick it up and we move it some more and we stick it down again. Well, maybe we return back to the plain teachings of Scripture. There's no form of sexual expression outside of the bonds of a heterosexual marriage that is pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, in some ways, you don't have to explain it. Because even lost people, by common grace, understand that certain things are still shameful to some extent, though it is being heavily promoted and trying to be normalized more and more. 
Why is that? Why, why, why does God teach such things in his word? Because we are created as men and women in the image of God. And God himself is characterized by purity, by holiness, and by faithfulness. And we, created in his image, are to be like him. And when we engage, when we engage in sexual immorality, we mar the image of God. We mar who we were created to be. God, let me, let me say this to you. God does not ban sexual immorality to keep us from fun and pleasure. I promise you he does not do that. God restricts us from these things because he knows that true fun and pleasure comes from him alone. It comes from him alone. How deceptive is this sin of fornication and adultery and sexual morality? It is a cancer. It is a cancer that promises you fulfillment and enjoyment and satisfaction. And if you're a Christian, as soon as you're done with it, you're miserable. You're miserable. And there's not a, there's not a married man or a married woman who are saved today, who are in Christ today, that would not give you such counsel and such advice. Whether they were pure at the marriage altar or whether they weren't pure at the marriage altar, this is the advice that they would give you. The more like God we become, the less sin we have in our lives, the more true fun and true pleasure we will experience in Him. I think it was Augustine who said that there is a, a hole in us can only be filled by God. It doesn't matter what we try to fill it with. We'll never experience satisfaction and joy apart from Him. So what are you to do as a Christian to guard yourselves and to glorify God in a culture that promotes gender bending, that relishes in homosexuality, and that relishes in all forms of immorality? Young men, search the Scriptures and see how the Bible describes a godly man. And once you have found that character, act like that, talk like that, look like that, be that. Young women do likewise. What does the Bible say that a godly woman looks like? You're not to be defined by what the world says a young lady should look like, and be like, and talk like, and dress like. What does the Bible say? And be that. Older men, be the kind of mature, godly man that a younger brother in the faith can look to and emulate. Older women do likewise. Younger women in the church. Then he goes on in verse 10. Kind of takes a little bit of a turn, does he not? Nor thieves, nor covetous. What has Paul just done? He has just, he's just gone from sins that we regard especially shameful and heinous, sexual immorality, to thieves and people that covet in their heart. Sins of the heart. And he puts them right in the same list. Well, so much for the gross big sins and the small respectable sins. Covetousness is the sin of the heart that leads to the outward expression of theft. We steal because we covet. Not being satisfied with what God has graciously given us. Desiring more than what God has given us. Desiring something that God has been pleased to give to someone else, but not you. There are more ways to steal, by the way, than simply taking something that doesn't belong to you. Borrowing and not returning. Getting paid for eight hours and only working for five. Stealing. Stealing. Nor drunkards. This doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. One who lives a lifestyle of intoxication and inebriation. One who lacks self-control in the matters of food and drink. One who forsakes his sobriety. The emphasis here is not on the substance, not on the means, but on the effects. Okay? Drunk. To be drunken, that's, that's an English word, okay? In, in, the, in the original, we find a word that communicates to us just living a lifestyle of inebriation. 
It goes beyond just excessive alcohol use, and it includes anything that can be used for the purpose solely of altering your state of mind to the point of intoxication. Marijuana is, of course, a battleground right now for Christians. And, you know, there was a time in which pastors could at least say, well, it's illegal, so we shouldn't do it. But now, we're, we're not, we don't even have that ground to stand on hardly anymore. And we get bogged down in all of these medical arguments and medicinal arguments that really aren't the issue. Okay, Drunkards shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are using substances not to glorify God, uh, not as an expression of your thankfulness for Him, but solely for the purpose of deadening your senses, and that is your manner of life, you're a drunk. And you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Nor revilers. <laughs> this perhaps is one of the most shocking sins that we could find on this list. What is a reviler? A reviler is someone who abuses with their words. Why do I say it's shocking? Because it's a sin that is so often committed and we think that it is just so light because everyone does it. Slanderers, gossips, those who malign and destroy others with what they say about them. Notice that revilers are on the same list with homosexuals, fornicators, and drunks. Do you think God is overlooking your gossiping tongue? God hates your gossiping tongue. Unless you repent, your gossiping tongue will condemn you to hell. And then lastly on this list, extortioners. It says, nor extortioners. Or swindlers is another synonym for this word. Those who steal indirectly. Taking unfair advantage of others to promote your own financial gain. It's extortion. It's a form of indirect dishonesty and theft. Now, this is quite the catalog of sins that Paul covers. This is the valley that I spoke to you about earlier. No, going through a list like this doesn't make us feel comfortable. Going through a list like this, quite honestly with you, is not the most fun thing to preach. It doesn't make us jump for joy. If you're like me, this list reminds you of what a wretch you are. This list reminds you of how despicable your sin is before a holy God. And we need to be reminded of that, Christian and unbeliever. Praise be unto God. Not only has he given us verses 9 and 10, he's given us verse 11. He's given us verse 11. The catalog of sins is met by the converting grace of God. As he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Could there ever be a more glorious proclamation? We were such, but we are no more. And if you are here today, and if you are lost and without Christ, and if you have seen this list of sins, and if you are convicted of them and guilty of them, and you will stand before God and be judged because of them, and if you think that being a Christian is as simple as abstaining from them, and your, your goal is to, well, if I can just quit these sins, I'll be all right. You need to understand something. You need to understand that the kingdom of God is not made up of righteous people who worked so hard and got in because of their good behavior, but the kingdom of God is composed of fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and thieves and drunks and gossips and liars who have been marvelously converted by the grace of God. We were not better than those people in verses 9 and 10. We were those people in verses 9 and 10. Paul is not writing about someone else outside of the church. He's writing to the church. You were this. This is what you were before I came into your life, before I interjected my grace. God, by his sovereign love, which he bestowed upon us in Christ before the foundations of the world, was not pleased to leave us in this lost, damned, hopeless, and sinful condition, but he saved us from our sin and he rescued us from our filth. It says in verse 11, and such were some of you, praise God that that is past tense. But ye are washed. 
you are sanctified, that you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. These are three verbs that refer to something that God has done and not we ourselves. What we did was all the things in verses 9 and 10. Now we're talking about something God has done. These verbs describe three distinct aspects of the converting grace of God. Because of these verbs, God is able to say to us, such were some of you, but you are that no longer. Washed, sanctified, justified. What does that mean? That means that when God saves you, he cleans you up, he sets you apart, and he declares you righteous. What more could you need? What more could you ask for? What would you be lacking if you have been washed, set apart, and declared righteous by the God of heaven? Washed. Your sins made you filthy before him. You were a disgusting stench before a holy God. And he took you, and he washed you, and he made you clean. He made you whiter than snow. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I don't like to feel dirty. I love to fish. And when I have the time, I go down to Alabama on the Coosa River uh, with a friend of mine that has a plot of land down there, and we will spend all night fishing, jugging for big, slimy catfish, 20, 30-pound flathead catfish. And you will, at the end of the night, you'll be very dirty and slimy and smelly. I really like the fishing. I don't like being dirty. One of the best things about those trips is when we're finally done, we've got all of our fish, we get to go in and we get to take a shower. And I love that feeling of being clean. Well, what is true physically is true spiritually for the Christian. If you are a Christian and you have experienced the feeling of dirt, the feeling of, of besetting sin, you know there is nothing comparable to the feeling, the pleasure of knowing that though we have sinned against God and though we covered ourselves in the dirt of our transgression, that he has washed us. He has washed us. Now, we were forgiven. We were, we, you could say in a sense we were washed on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for us, yes, but we experience that in time. We experience that in time. As the Lord gives us repentance and faith, the gifts that he gives us. Psalm 103, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He has cast our sins behind his back. Jeremiah 31, he remembers our sins no more. Micah 7, he has cast our sins to the bottom of the sea. There's nothing else in all the world that brings a child of God more peace and more comfort than knowing that their sins have been washed away and you stand clean before God. But not only washed, also sanctified. To be sanctified literally means to be set apart. Now, usually when we think of sanctification, we think of progressive sanctification. We think of the process of God conforming us into the likeness of Christ after our conversion. There is a second type of sanctification. That's what Paul has in view here, initial sanctification. That is when God, for the first time, sets us apart. He separates us. He removes us from the realm of sin that we used to call home. He places his special love and his special affection upon us and he places us into his kingdom. We are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And our relationship to that former realm of sin is severed forever. We don't live there anymore. We don't want to go there anymore. We don't want to spend our days there anymore. We have a new home. We have a new people. We have a new God. We now serve. Sanctifies. And he justifies. And he justifies in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. What is justification? It's a theological term, but it's also a Bible word. Justification is legal and imputed righteousness. It's not actual righteousness that is infused in you as the Catholic Church would teach This is 
the determinant factor in your standing with God, everyone here this morning, let me say to you, God either sees you as just or unjust. But it brings me great joy to tell you that it has nothing to do with any works that you have performed. God does not justify you on the basis of you. Hallelujah. We saw what you did in verses 9 and 10. How could God ever call that just? He justifies you on the basis of another. Lost person, please hear me. The good news of the gospel is not, I once was bad, but now I'm good. And when I was bad, God hated me. And now that I'm good, God loves me. That is not good news. That is depressing news. That is hopeless news. The good news is not if you quit your sins and start living right, then God will accept you. The good news is not if you clean yourself up, then you can be a member of Christ's church. The good news is that you can't stop sinning. The good news is that you can't live right. The good news is that you aren't good, but He is. But He is. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and lived a perfect life, lived a sinless life. The good news is that Jesus never committed any of the sins on this list. The good news is that He took His perfect life and He went to a Roman cross and He died in the place of sinners. And now by virtue of what He did, God looks upon you and He sees Jesus and He calls you righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. But if you don't understand how awful the bad news is, you will never grasp how glorious the good news is. Why do we have to belabor these sins? Why do we have to look through them? Because if we are not reminded of what we were, we won't understand what He has made us to be. Salvation is no light change in your life. Becoming a Christian is not just a slight alteration to how you live. Salvation is being given life when there was none. It's been given purpose when there wasn't one. It's a total radical transformation of who you are. You're no longer a lost, damned, helpless sinner. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a child of the King. Christian, the good news is that your sins have been dealt with in the death of Christ. They've been paid for by His blood. And because of His righteousness, which He gave to you, you are no longer what you once were. In Christ alone you are accepted. In Christ alone you are in loved. In Christ alone you are embraced by the Holy God of heaven and earth. He is no longer angry with you. He is no longer looking down on you with condemnation or wrath. He, he is no, you are no longer guilty before Him. You can approach His throne boldly. He does not look at you and see your sins. He looks at you and sees His Son. Don't seek your encouragement in the progress that you have made. If you do, see, we talked about it. There might be some Christians here this morning that are, that are discouraged because they're fighting this battle with sin, but it seems that victory is so hard sometimes. Oh, and brothers and sisters, it is so hard sometimes. But don't seek your encouragement by the progress that you have made alone, but seek your encouragement from the work that Christ has done in you. The true saint of God is one who will read verses 9 through 11 and he will say to himself, I'm not what I ought to be. <laughs> Not even what I want to be. Praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Not what I used to be. The gospel allows you to say that. Can you say that this morning? Say, I must, I must say to you, if you are not in Christ, if you have never repented, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, verse 10 is where your story ends. Verse 11 is not for you if you are not in Christ. You're not part of the group that's addressed in verse 11. But oh, do I have good news for you. You are here and you are lost and you are without Christ. And if you see yourself a sinner, if you see yourself one who is guilty of the sins mentioned in verses 9 and 10, let me say to you, God is calling to you right now to lay down your sins, to turn from them, not to start a new foot, not to try harder, to quit your working, to rest in Christ. Don't remain in this valley. Come with us to the mountain of verse 11. Come with us. But the only way to get there is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Your efforts will never get you there. Your prayers will never get you there. 
Your church attendance will not get you there. Your Christian friends will not get you there. Christ alone will get you there. Let me say this. Every sinner who has ever come to him and said, Lord, take me to this place of justification and sanctification and washing, every single one of them has been taken there. He has not rejected anyone who has come unto him. If you have come to him for salvation and he has not saved you, it's because you truly don't want salvation. You don't want to be saved from what he saves you from. He will save you from these sins. Are you prepared to hate your sin? Are you prepared to no longer find any pleasure in the things that once pleased you? Are you prepared to turn forever from this life of iniquity? Be a slave to Christ. Come to him. Receive him today. Be washed. Be sanctified. Be justified. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. What an encouragement. Only you, Lord, could write a book with such wisdom. Only you could write 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that in one verse we are stricken, we are afflicted, we are reminded of what a wretch we are, but oh God, the very next sentence, we are enraptured by your joy and your love for us and your mercy and your forgiveness. This is your word. We love it. We believe it. We rest upon it. We have nothing else to say apart from it. Take this word by the power of your spirit and drive it home to our hearts. Help us. Wherever we are, whatever our needs be, if there's one here that doesn't know Christ, don't leave them alone. Intrude into their heart. Redeem them. Pierce their soul with the word of God. Christian that is discouraged, that is struggling, Lord, come unto them. Help them. Encourage them. Quicken them for your own honor and glory. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.